We're in a series on reconciliation, and uh, this is actually part six in that series. So uh, if this is your first time along today, don't worry. I'll recap some of the things that we've done before, uh, but we won't obviously have time to recap all of that. Um, but all of our sermons are online, so if you go to our website, you can uh, go back through them, or you can find us uh, on our YouTube channel as well. So you can always get more info about some of the foundations that have already been built as we launch into uh, our series on reconciliation. Now, essentially, um, if you haven't been here, reconciliation, you can have lots of different ideas about what reconciliation is and how it's achieved. But when you look at it in the Bible, it's always about truth. It's about coming together in truth. That's where true reconciliation happens. And that doesn't mean agreeing on everything. Um, but it means agreeing on the things that actually enable you to appreciate your diversity and your differences in all the different expressions of them, but still stay together as being one in spirit and in purpose. And we've talked about, over recent weeks, about wisdom as being the practical outworking of that truth. If, if truth is what we believe, then wisdom is how we behave. Um, and when you're able to not only know the truth, but to live according to the truth, to live wisely, that's good for you and it's good for others. It draws us closer to God and to one another. And today we're turning our attention to what's the role of the church in helping people to come to a point of being able to know the truth and live according to the truth, to live according to truth and wisdom in their lives. And... Uh, the church has been given a unique authority by God and also a responsibility to be his agents of reconciliation in the world, to be the ambassadors of his truth. The problem for most of us is that we haven't experienced anything like what the Bible talks about ought to be going on in the church. Um, that's just the reality of my experience and it might be the reality of yours. We've, we've had glimpses of it and sometimes it's been wonderful but sometimes what goes on in the church, because the church is made up of people like you and me, is horrible. So what we want to do today is look at the, at the scriptures through the eyes of faith. It says this is what God calls us to. And sometimes our experience says, yeah, right. But we have an amazingly patient and powerful God. And whenever we allow him to produce his good stuff in us, as we come under his word, as we let his spirit do its thing, as we step forward in faith, then the possibilities are exciting. And that's what we want to step into today as we explore what it is that uh, enables the church to become a powerful force for reconciliation, both in your life and in mine. So that's the basic question that we're going to be asking today. What is the role of the church in reconciling people to God, first of all, and to each other? Regardless of what you have or haven't experienced, what does the Bible say about what the church is meant to be doing in reconciling people to God and to one another? And we could read the whole New Testament from beginning to end in order to answer that question, but since we need to uh, be a little bit more restricted in the time that we spend, we're going to read just one small part of God's Word as uh, Paul, the Apostle, writes to Timothy, who's pastoring a small church, uh, and he's explaining to Timothy what really matters in order for that church to do this job, to be effective in reconciling uh, people to God and to each other. So let's dive into 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to pick up the passage in verse 14. Paul says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He, being Jesus, 
was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Now the spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, since it's sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason we labour and strive, because we've put our hope in the living God, who's the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Now there was a lot in there, wasn't there? So let's tune in to the instructions that Paul is giving to this young pastor, Timothy, uh, in a fairly young church that is just getting a handle on what does it mean to even be a church? What, is, uh, what are we supposed to be about? They need some help in figuring these things out, just as we sometimes need some help in either figuring them out for the first time or rediscovering them if we've lost sight of them. So what's the, the big picture of what uh, God is saying to us through this passage where Paul is addressing Timothy, his young friend? Well, do you remember how the church was described in this passage? It was close to the very beginning, and it said this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. I've written so you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So the church is being described in the Bible as being the pillar and foundation of the truth. What does that even mean? Does this mean that the church is the source of truth? No, it doesn't. Now, if you've been here over the last five weeks, and if, particularly if you were here on week one, what did we discover was the source of the truth? Well, our, our picture describes it, doesn't it? Jesus himself, uh, our saviour and our king. He is the way, the truth and the life. And you read through the New Testament and you see affirmed again and again and again, if you want to find truth, you find it in the person of Jesus. He's got the exclusive claim. No one else has the authority to say, I am the truth. No one else can say that they know the truth completely. The rest of us get it wrong somewhere. 
Uh, so if we're the people who kind of are surrounding Jesus, even that person who is closest to Jesus and has a, a grasp on uh, you know, most of his truth, there's still some stuff that he's getting wrong, that he's doing wrong. And that is the human condition. Everybody sins and falls short of the glory of God. No one's left out of that. Only Jesus is the source of the truth. So you need to read that um, theologically and say, well, Paul is not saying that the church is the truth or is the source of truth. When you go into any community of believers, there's going to be stuff they're getting wrong. Sometimes even what they say is right may not be right, which is why we always need to come back to who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. Does this mean the church is right about everything, as I've just said? No. Just because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, it is not saying the church will get it right all the time. And does it mean that the church has exclusive access to the truth? That if you don't know Jesus, you don't know anything, we're the ones who are right. Is it saying that? No, it's not. So what does this even mean? Well, I'll show you diagrammatically and then we'll kind of read that in our text. Uh, when we started our series, we, we t started by talking about the truth as being a really big thing that all of those people see some of, but then there are some things that they believe which don't actually line up with the truth that are lies. They're not true. Um, every single person is in that condition. That's every single person who has ever lived, regardless of their relationship with God, every person has some of the truth. We're all made in the image of God. We've been made to seek out, to rejoice in the truth. That's part of being human. Every human has valid perspectives on stuff. But also every human gets some things wrong. That's everybody's starting point. But when you come to know Jesus, you actually get to know the one who is the truth and you have a level of help that you never had before. So think about how people try and discover truth, explore truth, live in truth. I think of physical scientists like chemists or physicists or whatever. I was listening to a, a, a quantum physicist speak about um, his uh, scientific work the other day. It's absolutely fascinating. They're discovering truth. Sometimes they're discovering that what they thought was true was wrong as they continue the journey, but they have the opportunity through scientific inquiry to discover truth about our physical universe. And social scientists can unpack the mysteries of relationships and how people work and why we do what we do. And sometimes, again, they'll figure out that what we used to think was wrong and we discover more and we keep journeying in toward truths about the mysteries of human behaviour. Historians and anthropologists can unpack truth in the lessons of human history. Artists can discover the truth about beauty in form and colour and music and all those sorts of things. Truth is everywhere to be discovered. And God designed human beings to long for it. Even in different philosophies and religions, there's always going to be something that they've stumbled upon or discovered after a lot of hard work which they can say, this is true. But what the church alone knows is where truth comes from. Where anybody else in the world can explore truth or have a particular authority, the church alone knows that truth actually comes from Jesus and is about Jesus. And that's why Paul goes on to say in the next verse, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul's just driving us back to Jesus. Jesus is always the point. He's the one who is the source of truth. The church being the pillar and foundation of the truth. Why is it the pillar and foundation of the truth? Because the church knows Jesus. 
The church has experienced the revelation of Jesus. The church points people to Jesus. And as long as the church is pointing people to Jesus, it is fulfilling its function as the pillar and foundation of the, church, of the world, of the truth, sorry. When we do that, we become agents of reconciliation. We help people to discover truth and live in the truth. We help reconcile people in that way. Any other system or authority is limited. A physicist can only discover so much. An artist can only discover so much. A social scientist can only discover so much. Anyone in any kind of religious system can only discover so many things. It's only Jesus who is the truth and who can reveal all truth. And as Christians, we have that unique advantage. Our potential is unlimited because no human being is the source of truth. Jesus is. And because we've been reconciled to Jesus, we can bring his truth into any situation that we face or that those around us face. So as we think about the role of the church today, we need to make that our starting point, which is going way back to the first uh, week in our series, that our starting point is Jesus as the source of truth. So what, what role does the church play in pointing Jesus out, in helping people to be reconciled, to helping people to live according to the truth? Well, it's really quite simple. And that's what the rest of our passage is about, as Paul uh, encourages and exhorts Timothy. The first one is this. The first aspect of the power of the church in reconciling people is in that we proclaim truth and we practice wisdom. That's the first thing we do to make your life better. It's the first thing we do to help you to be reconciled to God and to other people. We teach the truth and we live it out. And that's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, watch your life and your teaching closely. Because that's a gift that you give to everyone around you. It's a gift to those who are inside the church. It's a gift to those who are outside the church. When you watch your teaching, what you say, when you watch how you live, the wisdom of your lifestyle, you are a gift to those around you. Proclaiming truth and practicing wisdom is the first way that we help people to be reconciled to God and to each other. The second thing that we do is that we expose lies and we resist foolishness. Paul says to Timothy in that same warning, hey, you're going to have to be careful that you don't just kind of follow the pattern of this world, as Romans 12 talks about. You're going to have to watch your own life. You're going to have to train yourself in godliness. You're going to have to work hard to stop doing the things that your peers do, to stop doing the things that you just grew up doing, to stop doing the things that everyone else around you says is cool or good or whatever. You have to train yourself to live out the truth, to know the truth. And you're going to help, need to help those around you. Don't ignore those guys who are teaching those foolish things about marriage or any of those other subjects that Paul touched on. You need to make sure when you spot errors that you expose them and you resist them. Those two things are essential. Now, practically speaking, what's going on in those instructions that Paul gives Timothy? Well, as you look at the people in our diagram, what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to help them to grow the parts of their lives that have a handle on the truth. So as they think about money, as they think about relationships, as they think about what they do with their bodies, as they think about uh, what they eat, you know, all of those things that Paul addresses, let's, let's allow the truth into that and let's grow into the truth. But all of us um, carry with us the baggage of certain lies we believe as well. And when we see somebody who is believing something that doesn't fit with Jesus, who's doing something that doesn't fit with Jesus, if we ignore that, it's like Satan's still got a hook in him. There's something holding him back, preventing them from being all that God wants them to be and preventing their relationships both with God and with others from really flourishing. So when we see some areas of people's lives where there are lies at work, where there is foolishness being exhibited, we have to do the brave thing and address that. 
and help people to um, see those areas in their lives in order to turn away from them. And so what does this look like when you come into a situation? Because our series is ultimately about reconciliation. So if this is what the church does, if the church shows the truth by pointing people to Jesus, um, the church doesn't need to be experts on physics or chemistry or any of that other stuff. The church needs to be an expert at showing people Jesus. That's our job because Jesus is the source of all truth. If that's what we are to do as the pillar and foundation of the truth, and if that involves both proclaiming truth and exposing lies, if it involves practicing wisdom and resisting foolishness, what does that look like when you come across some people who are in the midst of a conflict? Maybe they're two people who believe in Jesus. Maybe it's one who believes in Jesus, one who doesn't. Maybe it's two people who don't believe in Jesus. But does the church have a role in reconciling people if that's the essential function of the church, as Paul describes it to Timothy. Well, I think it does. And what's the difference when you're dealing with people who know Jesus and people who don't? Well, whoops, as we spoke about last week, you're not going to show favouritism. When you've been called into a situation where you have an opportunity as a member of God's church to help people move toward reconciliation, the last thing you're going to do is say, well, I like that guy on the left more than I like that guy on the right, so I'm going to talk about the things that he's got right, because he'll have some things right, and I'm going to talk about some things that the other guy's got wrong, because he's got some things wrong. But do you see how that tends to be very much human nature? We tend to do that. So if, if I'm in conflict with Vern, I want people to tell me where I'm right, and I want people to tell me where Vern's wrong. And Vern wants people to tell him where he's right and where I'm wrong. And, and both can do that quite easily. What the church is called to do is tell me where I might be right and wrong and to tell Vern where he's right and wrong and help both of us to reject what is wrong, choose what is right. That's the job of the church, to proclaim truth and to expose lies for both of us. We're going to want people in our lives to do that. We're not going to want people who take the easy or comfortable way out. We want people to be truthful to us. So how does that change if one of us is a believer and one of us isn't? Well, it's, it's actually quite simple. When you're dealing with a believer, you're pointing people to, to Jesus. Uh, you're saying, because Jesus did this, because Jesus said this, because Jesus um, will help you to do this, it's always all about Jesus. You might take the same truth with an unbeliever but they might not care about what Jesus says or what Jesus thinks or how Jesus offers to help. But they can still hear the truth because everything Jesus says and, and does and offers to help us in is true. And if they are receptive to that truth, they may well accept it from you as a gift even if they don't know where it comes from. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever heard anyone in our world talk about forgiveness? Of course you have. Most people recognise that that's a very important truth to apply in life. Now they might not recognise that Jesus is the source of forgiveness and he's the one who shows us how to do it best and he's the one who can help us to do it. They might not recognise that but most people at least get that forgiveness matters. So there's always going to be a way that you can present truth and invite people into truth and hopefully as you do that you might have an opportunity to show them where that truth comes from. So conflict becomes uh, not only something that is a little bit scary and it's a negative thing, but it actually starts to become an opportunity because in conflict, people are looking for truth. 
And Jesus is the source of truth. And so the role of the church becomes to not only offer that truth as a gift, but if we have the opportunity to show people where that gift comes from. Now we're going to do something really simple today. Uh, we don't want to spend all our time listening to me. Uh, I want you to do some thinking for yourselves. And uh, we'll start that thinking in here. And it'd be really cool if we continue it in our discussions afterwards. There are six basic ways that God has asked his church to help people who are in conflict. Uh, we're going to explore some of these next week. We're going to start uh, exploring them today. Six basic ways, and I am not going to go through each one of them and show you all the Bible verses and explain how they work because I think that God has put enough wisdom in our group and enough experience that when we actually start thinking about it, we'll go, aha, yeah, I can, I can think of that verse or I can remember that situation. So we are going to unpack them together. So what are the ways that we have been called as a church to help reconcile people who are in conflict. Well, the first thing we've been asked to do is to support the person or parties to do three things. Firstly, overlook the offence. Right, so if I uh, come across... Gee, it's dangerous to sit in the front row, isn't it, Alyssa? Uh, if I come across Alyssa and Pauline and they're in the midst of a conflict, all right, music didn't go well, you know, we weren't supposed to be doing it in that key, yes, we were. So whatever the issue is, they're, they're having a dispute. Uh, any time I come across uh, two people in a dispute, if I'm only talking to Alyssa because we're in the car on the way home and she can't avoid me, uh, what I'm going to do first of all is to ask the question, is this a conflict that can just be overlooked? Uh, is this a conflict where you can say, you know what, the other person doesn't even know that I'm feeling upset with them, they might not have recognised that I started in this key, she started in that key, and so I might just simply be able to, over oh, that happens. I might choose to believe the best in that person. I might be able to overlook that completely. Um, and if I can help somebody go from being churned up and angry at somebody to being in that position of saying, you know what, that's okay. I can overlook this. I'm not going to carry forward any bitterness. There's no issues that have to be resolved. It's just something I can get over. That's a great outcome. And that's the first way that we help other people. If we can come alongside them and help them to overlook an offence, that is a great outcome. But what do you do when it's already gotten beyond that? When there was already a snarky conversation afterwards or whatever it might have been and it's already be gone beyond that, I can just sort that out internally. What's the next thing we do to help people uh, to be reconciled? Well, pretty obviously, we, we actually focus on the relationship itself. What will it mean to, to have a good conversation? What will it mean to uh, apply God's wisdom in this circumstance just in terms of the relationship. Forget the actual issue, forget the argument, we can deal with that later. How are you feeling toward that person? How are you behaving toward that person? How are you reacting to that person? Keeping it all about the relationship. As I said, we'll get to the issues later, but you don't just dive into issues uh, irrespective of where the relationship's at because it's not going to go well. How can I make sure my attitude toward the person is right? That's the first thing that the church offers to those who are in conflict. Let's, let's focus on what matters most, and what matters most is your relationship. A whole bunch of tools that we have to help on that. And then once we've done that, then we're going to start to turn our attention to the issue. Okay, now that you're in a good place with God, first of all, and with the other person, how do we actually work through this issue toward a good outcome? toward a mature outcome, toward what's going to be helpful for all people. Uh, as Philippians 2 says, not just looking to your own interests, how do I help you get your way, but to the interests of others. How do we move toward a good negotiation so that at the end of it, all parties can say, you know what, 
that's a good outcome, our relationship is right, this is fantastic. That's the first three ways that the church fulfills its role that God has called us to fulfill in reconciliation. We support the personal parties to either overlook the offence, to reconcile the relationship and or to negotiate the issues. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now, I wonder how it's different when you're dealing with somebody who knows Jesus and somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And what I'd invite you to do as you um, chat about this with somebody afterwards or if you just go away and think about it yourself, I'd invite you to think about an issue that you've actually been through and ask God to show you those principles from his word that will help you to do one, two or three of those things in that particular situation. How would you do that with a person if they know Jesus and are willing to hear his words and to experience the conviction of his Holy Spirit? How would you bring some truths from Jesus but just present them in ways that people can kind of get? Okay, I can see why that's a good idea. As Christians, that's a gift that we offer the world. And as I said earlier, it may even be the first step to them saying, where did that come from? How come you knew to do that? So that's what I'm going to invite you to do today, um, to have some discussion on those three things, to think of some verses that apply. How would that change a situation that you are in the middle of right now? If you're helping somebody to overlook an issue, to focus on the relationship, and then to negotiate your way through the issues. The Bible has a lot to say about that, too much for me to cover today. What can you think of? as the Holy Spirit helps you to do that. But that's not all we do as a church. So I want to give you a very quick preview of what we're going to talk about next week because the next three things that we've been called to do are much, much trickier. So that's where we're going to spend a bit of time saying, okay, now let's dive in. Let's actually look at the Bible's uh, instructions on these three things. The next things that we do is we actually step into the dispute. So let's just say, and I'll continue to pick on them because they're both related to me, uh, Alyssa and Pauline. Let's just say that they are so hurt about what happened and embarrassed and all that that they're just not able to forgive each other and move on. And they can't agree about how they're going to avoid the same thing happening next time or what ought to be going on in music ministry. And it's just like, no matter how much we try, we're just not figuring this out. They need people to come in and actually step through the issue with them. And how does the church do that? The Bible gives us three ways. First, we mediate. Somebody comes in and helps the discussion happen in a God-honouring and, and uh, peaceful kind of way. Mediation is where you come between parties, still helping them to work it out, but you're just facilitating that discussion, making it happen for them. Uh, making sure that good listening is happening. Making sure that relevant Bible verses are being brought into the situation. Making sure that there's a pause for prayer if, the, if people are receptive to prayer. All of that stuff that sometimes when you're in the heat of battle you don't think of doing yourself, but somebody who's a step removed can come and help you to do. Mediation is the next thing that we do. Then you've got adjudication. This is where they say, we just can't come to agreement. Will you make the decision for us? We'll abide by what you say is right because we trust your discernment. The church actually should offer to do that for people. And finally, we have a role in holding people accountable. So when Alyssa goes away from a conversation with, with her auntie and, and she's grumbling about it, as somebody who's a follower of Jesus, my job is to say, hey... That's, that's not actually what God asks us to do. This is, this is not the behaviour we agreed that we would uh, commit ourselves to. So we, we have a job in holding people accountable to what they have said they will do and what the Bible says for them to do. Those are pretty hardcore things, aren't they? You want to do those things carefully. So we're going to spend some time next week thinking about what the scripture says about how we do that really well. If you've been a part of a church, you've probably seen that done poorly, right? 
uh, you've been in meetings uh, where decisions have been made and you've looked at the process and gone, that sucked. All right? So we all know what it's like to not live up to the goodness of what Scripture says there, which is why we're going to think carefully about how to do that next week. In the meantime, I want you to pray and chat about those first three. What would it be like for you to do those things, to help people overlook the offence, reconcile relationships, negotiate the issues? What's that needed to look like in your life at the moment? Looking forward to having some conversations with you about that later. Let's pray.